TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now... Here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear about welfare reform legislation under consideration in Harrisburg. We'll also talk to a geologist and author who believes it's possible that the Earth might actually be cooling instead of warming. And we'll catch up with famed mentalist Kreskin, who shares a few predictions for the new year. State Representative Aaron Coffer wasted no time getting back to work in Harrisburg this week. On Tuesday, Coffer and Representative Mike Tobash announced some bills they've crafted in an attempt to reform Pennsylvania's welfare benefits system. Coffer recognizes that there are some tough economic times in the state for families, but also believes there is abuse and waste under the current system. Coffer explained to us this week the reforms are needed in light of Pennsylvania's bloated budget. What we've been working on is trying to get this budget under under control, move things in the right direction, get people back to work. And so, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Exactly, to refer back to the hoop. Now, let's talk about an issue that you've been on for a long time, and you've been looking at uh, welfare re- reform in, in a way that, you're, you're looking at people who may be collecting benefits elsewhere, also collecting them in Pennsylvania, and you're looking for some strategies to make sure that people who are needy get benefits, but people who are just playing greedy do, do not get them so easily, right? Well, that's exactly it. We our, our welfare, our Department of Human Services is now the largest department in the Commonwealth, 40 40 percent of our budget is human services. So 40 cents of every state taxpayer dollar goes towards this. Now, the whole goal of what we're trying to do is, as, as we see this as a, one of the quickest growing uh, line items in our budget, one of the, the quickest growing departments, is how do we get people who are caught in this cycle of poverty, caught in, in these welfare programs, how do we get them to get out of there, to be self-sufficient, and be able to get back to work? So we've been working on, on looking at what other states are doing, what, what has been working in these other states, and trying to not reinvent the wheel, but implement what they have been doing in other states. And it, it's worked in other states. So now is the perfect time to be talking about this with the economy growing, jobs are available. You know, we did this back in the 1990s with the work, workforce state welfare programs under uh, with the the Republican New Deal with uh, the, the Republican contract with America with uh, Bill Clinton and you know we're focused on able-bodied people not seniors not children not the disabled but getting able-bodied people back to work and regrowing our economy all right talk about looking around the the United States of America and finding programs that work in a different state that we would like to emulate here in Pennsylvania yeah, no, there have been multiple states. You look at, at states like Maine and Kansas that have implemented some really significant uh, uh, programs. There, some of the welfare programs 
in Kansas when they instituted, there's a 127% income increase when it was implemented in Kansas, 114% increase in Maine, plus count all the number of people who went from being in poverty to being on welfare programs now to being uh, self-sufficient. So for in, in for example, some of these programs, for every $2,000 that were lost in benefits, people made $3,000 privately anyway. And that was, for example, I think that was in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, what we're looking at is if we were to implement some of these programs, uh, a reasonable estimate for Pennsylvania would be that we'd bring in about $175 million to $210 million in additional income, plus getting people self-sufficient, nothing, nothing than a higher ideal that we could think of than getting people to be self-sufficient. Okay, so talk about making these moves, because, Aaron, a lot of people, I believe, have the perception that if they leave some of the benefits that they have behind, that their lives will somehow be worse. And I think that when you have safety, when you have security, when you have something that's steady, you're afraid to take a chance on something that's uncertain. So how are you going to build that bridge, I guess, like Kansas did? Yeah, no, I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head because we we as a Republican caucus and and me being one of the architects putting this policy together, you know, the motivation is is not really fiscal, although it's painted in you know what is it going to do for dollars, but this is a human issue, you know. So we had in back a couple years ago we had a, a child. Uh, subsidy benefits cliff. So if you're making twelve seventy five an hour, you received a subsidy for child care. As soon as you made $13 an hour, you lost that entire subsidy. And so families would get that little bit of increase in a quarter an hour, but not be able to afford their child care anymore and actually fall back into that cycle of poverty. So one of the things that's part of this, this package of legislation is how do we remove some of these cliffs where people earn that little bit of extra money but lose uh, overall on what their family is used to receive. So trying to address those benefits cliffs so when people get working and start making more money that they don't lose everything. It's not an all-or-nothing type thing, but we can help people build that nest egg and help them get out of this cycle of poverty. That's why it's so important to me, you know, breaking this cycle of poverty. That's what I talk about all the time is how do we get people to be self-sufficient and get back into the workforce. And uh, I I think that's what people want to do. It's just that, that right now our system does not enable them to do it. We are not empowered people to be self-sufficient. How many discussions, Aaron, have you had with people who do receive welfare benefits and uh, about the challenges that they do face? You just talked about this this cliff, which sounds awful, and there should be some, I guess, uh, grading in there so it's not uh, all or nothing. But what do people say about why they, they continue to use these benefits? We actually had had a young lady who testified, uh, who, who spoke at our, our announcement just a couple days ago, who spoke about how her father had passed away, her mother was working in a dental office, and she earned just that little bit too much and lost health care for, for her and her siblings because of, of these benefits-type cliffs. And, and people, her mother had to unfortunately, you know, start working less so that they, she could still receive health care. This is the problem that we have. We want people to, you know, keep working. We want to incentivize that, but right now our laws and our policies don't do that. Over the three years that I've been in office and been working on this issue, this is, it's finally come to fruition that we've put forward a lot of the policies that we've been working on. And I mean, this is, this is comprehensive. We're not talking about uh, nibbling around the edges. This is comprehensive welfare reform about trying to get people back to work. And, and, and this is, uh, like I said, many years in the making. As you know, I've been working on this for quite some time, and this is really a, a 
significant step that we can take forward. I know when we talked in the past, we discussed people uh, double dipping, collecting mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, also collecting in New York, also collecting in New Jersey, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of mechanisms might be put into place to stop that from happening? So we, I had my bill signed into law at the end of December 2015 now that we are now doing a Social Security cross-check with people who are double-dipping across state lines. But in addition to that, one of the bills as part of this package that, that, is, uh, that I've sponsored is a residency verification interstate compact. So the problem a lot of times is that people will bounce from state to state to state and maximize their, their, their benefits, and they'll max out everything that they can receive and then move on to the next state. What this would be, because a lot of these programs are federally funded, this would make it so that if you were to collect in one of these states that are part of this interstate compact, that if you were to collect in one state, that you can't just move to another state and start fresh all over again and, and start receiving. This is to make it that we as states can work together, make sure we're getting people back into the workforce and not taking advantage of the taxpayers. Are there jobs, Aaron, that are sustainable, in your opinion, in Pennsylvania for these uh, individuals? Absolutely. I mean, I just talked to Tom Medico maybe about a week ago. Medico Industries, 100 jobs. Anybody looking for a job, walk into Medico Industries. 100 jobs that they have right now. Chewy.com is expanding. Berkshire Hathaway is expanding. We, we are now at this point where we are expanding. And I was talking to Wiko Van Genderen, who's with the, the Wilkes-Barre Chamber of Commerce, who said, we're at the point now that, you know, we, we are now have to be focused on how do we get, make sure that we're getting people into these jobs as our employers are expanding. So we have jobs available. We need to make sure that we get people into the workforce and doing these jobs. All right. Now talk about some of the specifics of the legislation that the package of legislation you're working on. Yeah, I mean, some of it is work requirements and some of the stuff that we have, which uh, that's been implemented in, in some other states. We have some, but the whole, you know, it, to put this in perspective, these are things that other states are doing. A lot of these things are not new ideas. Even when we talk about a family limit for TANF benefits, which is temporary assistance for needy families, we're, you know, New Jersey has has a limit. New York has a limit. We don't. And and it, it's it's sad that we, we have fallen behind because we haven't been focused on some of these issues. When it comes to extended TANF. We are now the only state that, that has, for without special waivers for people who are disabled or other specific issues, we're the only state that allows people to collect indefinitely. And, and that, that just doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense to me. You talk to any, any person that says people can collect indefinitely their welfare benefits in Pennsylvania, it doesn't make sense. So changing that, that program, changing it over, making sure we're going after these benefits cliffs, which is one of the bills that I'm sponsoring as well to make sure that we can do this type of transitionary programming, get people self-sufficient. These are these are a lot of the goals, and, and you know, there's about 15 to 20 bills that are out there on these topics, and it's all stuff about good government, making sure that we can get the help to the people who truly need it while we're getting people who are able to work back to work. Not being able to collect benefits indefinitely. What kind of ideas are you receiving from other states about that? Well, where's the cutoff? Who gets cut off? If, or should people be worried if, they're, if they have uh, dependents, et cetera? So the ETANF is a program that is a five-year pass-through from the federal government to the state government. And so extended TANF, we are 
like I said, the only state that has a uh, an open door, a completely open door on this policy. So we're the only ones that are doing this. With extended TANF, when you receive over 20% of people who are on TANF, it is still allowed to be uh, federally funded for eTANF. And once we get beyond that 20%, it's now state funded. We're now be, uh, be above that 20% level. It's coming out of taxpayer dollars from Pennsylvania. So this is a way that we can save money and get along with what every other state is doing. So, I mean, this is nothing unique. We are unique in that we're giving this out in Pennsylvania, but making this change is certainly not unique and would certainly put us more in line with what every other state in the the United States is doing. Do you believe that your uh, fellow lawmakers in Harrisburg, Aaron, have the political will power to touch an issue like welfare reform? Well, I, I think they I think they do, and the reason being is that this is an issue that it, it, it's even-handed in its approach. We are trying to make sure we can protect the tax dollars to the people who truly need it, while people who are able to work, we create programs that will help them get out to work. And uh, I, I think this has been very well thought thought through. We I, we do have Democrat support for for this type of initiative as well, and it's going to take a lot of work to get from where we are today to get it across the finish line and signed by the governor, but the conversation needs to start. This is talking about real budgetary numbers as well. Like I said, the motivation is not fiscal. This is about getting people back to work, which is the highest ideal I think we can have is when you look at it, the basic simple idea is when you can take somebody who's receiving benefits and now get them back to work and are now taxpayers, it's a double win. You know, they're not only just not receiving uh, previous benefits, but they're now contributing uh, to the tax base. So it's a double win for people in Pennsylvania, and I think this is where we should be focused, especially with with our growing economy. We've actually had a lot of support from some of our building trades in moving this initiative forward. The, the building trades are hiring right now uh, with apprenticeship programs, and, and they want to get people back to work and keep growing as well. So there's a lot of different organizations on the left and on the right who want to come together and make some, some real Meaning, meaningful reform. Does the governor want to sign this bill? Or so package? We, we've we, we've we've informed the governor that we were working on this package. He's aware of it. We haven't had specific conversations about specific bills and specific pieces of the package, but he is aware of this. He's he's aware that this is a, a, a topic I'm interested in, as well as our caucus. And I think we will reach some level of agreement on what we can do to get done here. So I, I, I do think there is there is room to reach agreement. Finally, property tax reform. Is this the year or not? I I'm, I'm certainly hope so. The, the governor will announce his budget here in February. I've actually reached out to his staff as well, hoping that he's going to include something for the 100% homestead, um, which passed uh, on, on the ballot just this right. past November. I, I'm hoping that we will get something done. If he announces something, that is truly how we're going to come together and, and have a bipartisan budget that can be supported by people all across the Commonwealth. Property tax reform needs to be part of it. And uh, the other issue that you often work on is about uh, addiction and opioids. We know from Luzerne County statistics that uh, 2017 will be the deadliest year for overdoses in the county. Um, Right now, it doesn't look as though the the progress is being made yet. I think the foundation is is being laid, but uh, the progress is, is slow in coming. 
No, I, I agree with you on that. I think we're going to have another, unfortunately, uh, another bad year ahead of us. Um, you know, car fentanyl is really starting to take take foot in Pennsylvania, which is an elephant sedative, and it, um, it's really coming across the border from Ohio. It's coming across from the west into Pennsylvania for the most part, and uh, where I think that we are going to have another bad year, unfortunately, ahead of us. But um, that we did make some progress on some of the legislative initiatives, and I think there are some other initiatives that we can get done that will really start getting at the heart of this issue. But we are beginning to lay that fo- that foundation, that groundwork that you were talking about. And I think, you know, we're another year or two away from really starting to beat back in the other direction. That's State Representative Aaron Coffer of the 120th Legislative District. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. We've been experiencing what some call an old-fashioned winter in the country, with frigid temperatures, howling winds, and just enough snow to make everyone miserable. So, how does this play into the notion of global warming, which some scientists have talked about as a rise in temperature, the melting of ice caps, and a change in sea levels? Author Gregory Wrightstone isn't buying that idea. In fact, he believes the Earth might actually head toward a cooling period, and natural forces are the driver of temperatures. Wrightstone discussed his new book, Inconvenient Facts, and shared his beliefs on the state of the planet. I recently spoke to a large uh, meeting of geologists, and virtually every geologist I talk to agrees pretty much with, with what I have to say, is that we're not, I'm not a denier. I, I admit that carbon dioxide has increased a bit. And it's due to our burning of fossil fuels, and that that carbon dioxide is probably having a small effect of warming on on the temperatures. But I think those, the temperature increase is greatly overwhelmed by the natural drivers that have been in place for hundreds of millions of years. Actually, it turns out a new discovery of a giant star in the middle of our solar system that's driving the temperatures. It's called the sun. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's solar cycles, and it, 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 a lot of this is driven by uh, solar storms. The worst part, the, the lowest temperatures were called, uh, it was called the Maunder Minimum back in the uh, late 1600s, where it got horribly cold. Um, 600,000 people died in one year in France at the, in the depths of the Maunder Minimum. Uh, half the population of Iceland perished. I mean, bad things happen when it's cold. And historically, civilizations flourish during warming periods like we're in. Do you actually foresee, Gregory, that we could actually go in the other direction and head toward colder temperatures in the future? Oh, oh, absolutely. It's going to happen. But the problem is we don't know when it's going to happen. It might. Uh, this might be a harbinger of something now. There's been a lot of work on... Uh, on the solar cycles that we're seeing, that a lot of recent report that just came out this week that's predicting a 30-year cooling period of significant cooling uh, starting in a few years. Uh, it's going to come, and one of the big uh, overarching themes of the book really is uh, the horrific things that happen when things get cold famine, pestilence, uh, mass depopulations. And these are things that technology really can't overcome. We can't we can use mechanization and fertilization to grow more foods, but if we get bad weather like we have in the little ice age and the other cooling periods, you just 
crops don't work don't don't grow if if you don't have the sun if there's too much water uh, and you can't you can't replace food that you don't grow and that's that's a real concern uh, heat has always been uh, beneficial civilizations prosper and flourish people have lots of food to eat they can tinker they can dream they can sculpt create art uh, when there's lots of food when when it's cold and there's not uh, the overarching uh, uh, theme for most people is just where is my next meal coming from? How am I going to feel, feed my family? And those are the things you're facing with the colder temperatures. Hey, you go back to that hierarchy of needs where you're just in such a struggle that you you can't achieve any kind of enlightenment. You only worry about basically feeding yourself. So that would be bad. How does um how does climate.gov and, and NOAA account for the fact? that their chart was was way off. I mean, has anybody accounted for what happened here? Uh, no, they, they tend to quickly forget about things like that. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, though, is from Yogi Berra. He said, making predictions is tough, especially about the future. <laughs> and uh, he was right about that. You know, we can say, I, I can confidently predict that at some point we're going to go back into a cooling period, Um Maybe it'll be another little ice age. We're also at some point going to go back into another true ice age, which would be horrific. Um, if you look at the last ice age, virtually all of Canada and most of the United States was covered in hundreds of feet of ice. But most of Canada in that area would have to be abandoned uh, due to uh, snow and ice, and you just can't live there. So. You know, it is a possibility that Donald Trump may be building his wall on the wrong border because we're going to have 80 million Canadians trying to come south to uh, get into the southern United States. So when that when that uh, climate event does occur, uh, I'd advise your listeners to either buy a new pair of mittens or better yet, move to Costa Rica. <laughs> well, do you think we might be around for this, or do you think this is a long time in the? And I know you said it's. Very difficult uh, to predict the future, but uh, what do you do? You think we would well, see we're 11, like this in our lifetime? Well, we're eleven thousand years into the current interglacial period, and these interglacial periods last anywhere from nine to fourteen, fifteen thousand years. So, it it could come within the next couple of decades, or come might be the next couple of thousands of years. Um, there's not a really good way to predict this. We do know that these. Uh, Ice age events occur in hundred thousand year cycles. These are I'm not going to go details, but it's called the Milankovitch. These are Milankovitch cycles that are driven by uh, the Earth's orbit and the wobble of the uh, of the Earth and the eccentricity of the uh, of the of our Earth's uh, uh, orbit there. But I, again, I don't want to. We don't we don't want to go too deep in the weeds. But these are in hundred thousand year cycles regularity. So we could be coming to that. And this is, we have a huge storm that's brewing uh, in the southeast in the ocean. And often I, I look askance at a lot of things that they predict, but some people I really respect, like Ryan Maui that runs weatherbell.com, uh, is predicting a superstorm that may lead to some of the lowest temperatures we've seen in over 100 years. And again, that, that would take us back into the Little Ice Age, uh, the, that kind of temperature. The temperatures we see there. So, why so much acceptance of 
climate change slash global warming, because we know that people often intertwine the terms, but why so much acceptance, Gregory, in your opinion, of that and such a dismissive nature of what you believe might happen? That's a good question. Um, I deal with a lot of the aspects of climate change in my book, Inconvenient Facts, uh, but it doesn't leaves open really what the biggest question is, and what is that biggest question is, why are they lying to us? Uh, it's a whole, I know it sounds like a huge conspiracy, but if you look at my book, I look at each one of the major things that we're talking about, drought, polar bears, uh, famine, heat waves, we see that these are all completely off. What's, what's actually happening I live in the real world, like you hear Rush Limbaugh. I, I live in the I live in the real world, and I look at what's actually happening, and a lot of the apocalypse events that are predicted are either just not happening or just the opposite of what we're being told. And uh, those apocalyptic climate events are really based on uh, future predictions using severely flawed climate models. But uh, they often point towards uh, you know things like melting ice caps as as physical evidence that things are changing. How do you address things like that? Well, let's your listeners may not be aware, we could melt the entire northern polar ice cap and it wouldn't raise sea level one millimeter. And the reason for that is and the same with the Arctic Antarctic ice shelves, because they're floating on water. Uh, just think about the Titanic. We've got ninety percent of the iceberg that's underwater. So as that iceberg melts and the polar ice caps melt, uh, the water that's displaced is actually equalized by the melt. And you can do that experiment at home with some ice cubes in a, in a glass and mark that level. Uh, melt the ice cubes and the water level remains the same. And it's the same with the northern polar ice cap. Sea level is driven mainly or entirely by melting of glaciers and ice on land. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, sea level's been pretty constant since about the uh, early 1800s. It, it is not, the rate is not increasing. Uh, as we came out of the Little Ice Age, uh, glaciers started receding, and they've been receding since then. And that was completely naturally driven. We saw that the uh, Little Ice Age, the warming trend that we're in right now, actually began in the year 1695. So... We knew there were no SUVs or coal-fired power plants in India in the year 1695. Uh, but we've seen 300-plus years of warming that half of that had to have been completely naturally driven. And what the climate alarmists are asking, they're asking your listeners, they think your listeners are idiots. They think that what they're asking us to believe is that the natural drivers of climate and temperature that have been in operation for hundreds of millions of years suddenly ceased operation at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, come on. You, you know that's not correct, and your listeners know that's not correct. It just doesn't work that way. Gregory, uh, but, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I'll tell you that uh, if you're interested, uh, if your listeners are interested in purchasing, purchasing my book, both Amazon and Barnes & Noble are actually sold out of my book right now. Uh, the only yeah, place it is. I, yeah, I checked that this morning. There are none on Amazon. Very good. Yeah, we re the Tucker Carlson interview really drove those numbers. And for your listeners, I'll give you a special promo code of 1776. 
and they can go to my website, which is inconvenientfacts.xyz, uh, and buy it there with the promo code 1776 to uh, get $5 off the book if they use that. Uh. So, yeah, the the book has been extraordinarily well-received. And what I uh, my publisher I talked to the other day has said he's never seen another book like this. And they this is a huge publication. And the, what he meant was they're seeing large numbers of people buying multiple copies of the book. You just never see that. And what we're finding, people buy the book, read it, and go, oh, my God, you know, I need to buy this for my kids, my grandkids, and people need to read this book. Because the book is written targeting non-scientists. The main thing I hear about the book, it's very readable. People that hardly ever read and definitely never read anything about science pick this up and in some cases can't put it down. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's out there. Uh, also, if you sign up uh, on the website, uh, I've got a button there. I will send a PowerPoint presentation of the top 25 figures in the book to everyone that signs up there, because I don't want this book to be just something that sits on a shelf. I want your listeners to go get the PowerPoint and have something. So if their idiot brother-in-law from Baltimore you know, posts something about polar bears on Facebook, they can go, oh, well, what about this? And they can show actual science that's sourced and referenced. Now, you have a, a part of your book where you talk about uh, hurricanes and how they are politicized. Extreme weather, Gregory, is often talked about as evidence of uh, something going on, right, with the climate change. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I saw that we've never had this before, these hurricanes back to back to back, extreme weather, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you well, address that? We have had hurricanes back to back to back. What we haven't had were 12 years of relatively no hurricanes. We had no major hurricane making a landfall in the United States for 12 years. And that had never happened before. Uh, the previous record was eight years back in the uh, 1860s. So what's been unusual has been the low number of hurricanes. So it may have seemed that three hurricanes was a large number, but if we look at the big picture, uh, we see that hurricanes have actually been declining, not increasing. Uh, and actually the uh, Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change actually recognizes that, and they say that there's no link between increasing hurricanes and uh, the warming that we're seeing. Uh, we also see that tornadoes are uh, decreasing. 2016 had the lowest number of tornadoes, ended up 2016. I've got that in the book. Uh, according to NOAA, I've got a, a chart from NOAA that I've got in the book. Uh, lowest number of hurricanes that they've ever recorded, or of tornadoes that they've ever recorded. Uh, so the, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but... <laughs> Rising temperatures don't cause severe weather. Severe weather is caused by differentials of temperatures. In other words, a really low temperature versus a very high temperature. Uh, rising temperatures tend to equalize the differentials, and it actually leads to less severe weather events. Anything else that you'd like to talk about before we let you go? What's another thing that you believe is floating out there that you'd like to say, no, it's not what it seems? Well, I think the, the big thing when we talk, you heard me talk about how a lot of these events uh, are declining. A lot of that's driven, forest fires is a great example. 
I thought going into the book that forest. I'm, did you believe forest fires were increasing? You probably yeah, did. Yeah, I did. Right? Yeah, because yeah. California looks Everybody like it's burning to the ground. Yeah, uh-huh. right. Exactly. But if you look at the long term uh, numbers of, of forest fires, and it's very well documented. Uh, there is a long term and significant decline. In fact, I just went back in the book. Uh, I took the forest fire data for the United States back to the year 1960. I just found some other additional data from the U.S. Census Bureau that takes it back to the year 26, again confirming that we've been a long-term decline in both number of forest fires and an acreage burned. And it's counter to what you might think. You'd think with rising temperatures, well, droughts and forest fires and heat waves should increase, but... They're not mainly because of uh, increasing soil moisture across the world. The world is actually greening. It's not turning into a desert. Uh, and that's actually due directly to rising temperatures, which increase water vapor within the atmosphere and leads to more precipitation. And also the CO2 fertilization effect means that plants don't need to suck more water out of the ground. So it leaves more water in the ground those things all lead to a, a greater soil moisture, which then, of course, is a dampening effect on forest fires and uh, and a lot of the other events that we see. So uh, rest rest assured and rest easy. You know, the, the planet is actually seeing great benefits from rising temperatures and increasing CO2, which is maybe one of the biggest ar- overarching themes in the book. And it's absolutely contrary to anything your, maybe your listeners have ever heard. That's geologist Gregory Wrightstone, who talked about his book, Inconvenient Facts, with us this week. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Inspired by the comic strip, Mandrake the Magician, George Joseph Kresge has used his mind and his good humor in a decades-long success as a mentalist. He appeared on The Tonight Show more than 60 times and still entertains audiences with his mental acumen. George Joseph Kresge is known much better as the amazing Kreskin, and he appeared with us this week to talk about his lengthy career and what he sees on the horizon for 2018. Kreskin, I want to ask you something about your, your gift that you possess. Can you tell me about... How you when you first felt that you had it, and can you tell other people how they might be able to develop a gift that they might have within themselves? I know in the age of electronica, I think it's harder than ever to focus, meditate, and pay attention. But how did you know that you were amazing in yeah. the beginning? And and, and so you said something that I've been commenting upon uh, greatly when I so I do seminars as well, and I I speak before professional groups as well as of course my main work is entertainment, but. We, we are not, with all the electronic devices, we're not listening to each other as much as we once did. You know, folks, do yourself a favor every, every day. Stop running. Just stop running and sit down and reflect for just a few minutes about simple things in our lives and people that have touched us, have, that have said something to us during the day that we might want to just reach, because we're not stopping to reflect. The uh, uh, By the way, sociologists have all commented to me, and teachers will tell you the same thing. We're not listening as much as we once did. I could tell you endless stories where someone was asked in front of me to do something very simple, but the person 
person didn't quite hear it right. It's not low intelligence. It's that we're so overwhelmed with with stimuli that we're not hearing things in, in fullness. And I'll tell you what, how it all started. When I was in when I was in uh, third grade, uh, uh, Miss, I was nine years old, and Miss Curtis said, "Well, the weather's bad outside. You're not well, you're not going to go out and play. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you a game." And she sent one of the classmates. Her name was Jane Hamilton into the hallway. And we, we put a bean bag in someone's desk, one of these cross bean bags, and she called Jane back in and she says, Jane, uh, she says, Jane, you walk around when you're near it. We'll say you're getting warm when you're not near it, you're cold, and if you're real close, it's hot. And a gold game called hot and cold. And so I was, I was very disappointed because I wasn't asked to, to play. And when I'm walking home and I walked a mile to school from kindergarten to high school, wherever I went then, because, and thank God I walked because we met people on the way and talked to them. But I'm walking home. My, I get home. My brother's three years younger. I said, let's go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Now, they were from Sicily. It was an old-fashioned house that my grandfather built with his own hands. They rented the downstairs. It was 10 minutes from where we lived. I said, here, here Joe, here's a penny. Hide it upstairs because they lived upstairs and rented downstairs. My brother goes up. He calls me. I'm downstairs near the front door. He says, I, I hid it, and I go up the stairs, and I walk into my my uh, grandpa's, my grandparents' house upstairs. It's an old-fashioned kitchen, a large kitchen, and she's sitting there. Didn't know quite what we were doing. She only spoke Italian. I was very close to her, and I found myself walking into my uncle's bedroom. He was at work, and I climbed up on a chair because I'm, of course, I'm only nine years old. I'm short, and Sue. I found myself reaching behind a curtain rod, and I suddenly felt a penny, and then it dawned on me. I forgot to tell my brother to talk to me. I never asked him to say a word to me. I never asked him even to communicate. And here I walked through. I must have been unconsciously perceiving his thoughts. And that was the beginning of the major incidents of my entire life. Of course, it got around the family and my grandmother being Italian. They might have thought I had the evil eye, but Sue, we won't let that out on the press. <laughs> but it was the beginning. And then, then Sue... In grade school, what, what inspiration I had, I had in, in fourth grade a teacher, Miss Galloway, who was also my teacher in sixth grade. And during show and tell on Friday, she set aside a period of time where I would do things with my classmates. So I remember one time I asked my classmates to think of a movie they saw. And I pointed to Either I think it was Gloria Palmer who sit in the back. Now this is I'm going to kid. Gloria Palmer. I said, Gloria, you're thinking of a movie, but you didn't just see it. She says, No, uh, uh, I saw it around Christmas, and this was months later. And I named the movie she was thinking of. So by the time I was in sixth grade, I was already doing performances. And by the time I was in, I, I and I swear to God, that's true. By the time I was in the seventh grade, I was doing private shows. I wasn't getting big money, five or ten dollars a program. But Sue, by the time I was in high school, in, in ninth grade, I was already doing two-hour performances. I did a fundraiser for my class in ninth grade to raise funds. So it's been, Sue, it has been all of my life. And that was the building. Slowly with my audiences, I learned to work with them. And it all began with a thought-reading experiment that took place when I was uh, nine years old. So my life has been, it didn't happen overnight. And folks, there's a word 
that we don't understand today. It's called empathy. And empathy is not sympathizing, understanding how other people feel and so forth. That's very important. But empathy is a very interesting concept. It's the ability to feel the way someone else feels. And I learned early in my life, even in walking with people, to put myself in their shoes. Because the American Indian had a phrase, you never judge someone until you walked in their shoes. And maybe that's part of a clue of what became part of my lifestyle. I don't mean that I'm hearing everybody I meet or so forth, but I've learned to tune in on people and to kind of get this feeling of others. So it, was, it wasn't an overnight thing. I didn't suddenly fall on my head or eat a box of cereal. It was a gradual thing, but I always felt, Sue, I always believed that this was going to be my life. And the key turning, the key moment in my life was when I was five years old, and there was a comic book when I was a kid, and it was called Mandrake. It was called Mandrake the Magician. He really wasn't a magician. He had hypnotic abilities. He read people's thoughts, soft crimes in this comic. And Lee Falk, who wrote him, also wrote another comic called The Phantom. They were very famous cartoons when I was a kid. They were in the daily papers. They were in the Sunday papers. And that was my hero. I play-acted Mandrake when I went out and played as a kid. So I already was imagining I could do these things. And i got to tell you one of the inspiring moments of my entire life. 30, 40 years later, at Sardi's Restaurant, which is, was a famous restaurant here in New York, you know, where celebrities were at, they were having a a seminar, and they invited Lee Falk, who had written Mandrake, um, which was the war, and, and the Phantom, which were so popular during the Second World War and years after that. And the, the professors were honoring him, and graduate students were, because they had studied his comics. And uh, they asked me to be there because they had heard that the comic Mandrake triggered off this spirit in my life. So I, I arrived there, and there were a few hundred professors and so forth. I, I went over and shook hands with Lee Falk, and he says, Kreskin, I'm familiar with your work. It's nice to meet you. So we did a Q&A, and Sue, about two and a half later, hours later in the afternoon during the Q&A, and I'm sitting off to the side, he stopped. He says, I want to interrupt the questions that you're asking me and so forth. I just want to say something, state something. In all the years I have written Mandrake since 1935, the only living human being that's come closest in true, truthfully in life to being the Mandrake I wrote about is the amazing Kreskin. Can you imagine how moved I was by that, Sue? That's a, that is a phenomenal story, Kreskin. I love it's it's one of the most moving. I, I get the chills. I couldn't even talk after that. And, and a lot some of the professors that were there, I see at university, they say they remember that moment. So that was the beginning. I, I know I made it lengthy, but I thought your listeners would be interested. Love in it. it. Listen, now, the you do predictions for 2018. Can you highlight, Kreskin, some of the predictions that you see for our year that is about to unfold? Well, I got to tell you one that's gotten every around the world. I, I, a few days ago, I did two days of interviews in London because I've toured the world and they were doing some magazine pieces. So they got a kick out of this and they say, Kreskin, we know you're serious, so you really mean this. Now hear this, Sue, and don't hang up because you think I've gotten into pornography. I'm only joking. I don't go into pornography. Anyway, 
it deals now a lot of theaters today I believe we're going to do this within the coming year, and uh, some of the movie theaters do not get as, as large audience as they once did because after a few days, many movies you can get on the Internet and so forth. Right. And the, the, the theme I'm mentioning now is nudity. No, I don't mean a strip show. I don't mean a burlesque show. I mean that by the end of this year, and some reporters have said, Creston, for God's sake, call me on the phone the moment that breaks anywhere because we want to acknowledge what you predicted. I believe within this year, the coming this year, that a number of theaters in some large cities and in some medium-sized cities are going to have each month two or three nights where the people attending have to be nude in the audience. And I think, no, they're not going to do this to, to fight the, 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 the legal re, uh, right to carry a concealed weapon because you can't do that under those conditions. But I think it's going to happen. And, Sue, we'll get back to you the day that happens, and you'll say he's not so crazy after all. Well, but, that's uh, good to know. Now, what about <laughs> what about our country and President Trump? What do you see? Well, well I want to tell you some, I want to tell you some things uh, that I, I, if I can now get on to some serious areas. Yeah. Another prediction. Another prediction which has gotten a lot of interest, and I will, because I've done many, many shows for corporate groups in the, in the past month or so, a lot of them private affairs, and some of the legal groups have said, Christian, your prediction is not as crazy as it sounds to the audience. Within the next seven or eight years, six, seven, eight years, I predict 70 to 80 percent of the attorneys today will be out of work. Wow. 70 to 80 percent will be out of work. They will be let go. And by the way, I've already been told by by corporate people associated with legal areas, Kreskin, it's already starting to happen. People are now going to be doing more and more of their legal uh, activities and so forth through uh, computers, through electronics, uh, things and so forth. And the use of the individual uh, uh, lawyer is going to be less and less of a situation. It is stunning how, uh, and I can't give names, how many people have said, hey, you have said something that's not become public but it's going to become public before you know it. The other thing I want to talk about is the situation, and I'm not, I don't know it all. I'm not a fortune teller. But so when people must understand this, Sue, that when I am making predictions, it's because I spend such a gigantic amount of time with audiences and I'm tuning in on how they think and so forth. So in the past when thanks Deb I'll call you my secretary is having to leave because we're having we're having a bit of a blizzard here at this time yes. as, as you heard you yes, may have so, and it's 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 but I uh, I think we need to understand that one of the one of the tragedies in education today and I'm not just talking about in universities I'm talking about high school and grade school is so we're not studying history as thoroughly as we once did. We're not putting our hearts. Now, I don't live in the past, but you know, and we've heard this many times, we've been warned that if we, uh, over, over many decades, if we don't study history, we're destined to live it over again. And we need to study how the behavior of dictators is, not just with the evil, the terrible evil of Adolf Hitler and the evil of Stalin, who, well, by the, when he died, already two two particular cultures disappeared completely from the face of the earth because he erased them completely. Now, of course, as horrendous as it was, Hitler was attacking the uh, Jewish culture and what have you. We, we 
misunderstand that a dictator doesn't change. So Clinton was nice enough with the North, uh, with the Northern uh, North Korea, uh, uh, years ago to supply them with with uh, with monies and what happens so they could research uh, the uh, research atomic energy because they promised they would not use it for negative means. Well, let's not talk about dictators because we're already being threatened by North Korea. This man has already shot point blank someone in his family shot him dead. He said other people assassinated in front of him. When this leader of North Korea wants to get rid of people, they have to prove by, by either by burning them alive or what have you that what they've done, they have killed the person. If you think a person like that is going to now change by monies and what have you, it just doesn't work. And the problem with, with North Korea fella is not will he attack or send an atom bomb. It's when and where because they don't change. And that's the facts of life. That's the amazing Kreskin, author, mentalist, and perennial television guest. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.